Is there credible evidence substantiating the Canadian government's depiction of Omar Khadr as an unrepented terrorist and a threat to Canadians? Has the Conservative government violated the rights of Omar Khadr? What motivates the Prime Minister to challenge Supreme Court decisions relating to the Khadr case? And what is one to make of the Guantanamo facility itself? Is it possible that vast numbers of the prisoners detained there are known to be innocent? Does the Guantanamo Bay facility serve a hidden purpose in the context of the global war on terrorism? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we probe recent developments around the Cotter case in the context of documented revelations about what the Guantanamo Bay prison facility is really all about. Our guests for the hour will be Omar Cotter's lawyer, Dennis Edney, and Professor Michelle Chosodowski, founding director of the Center for Research on Globalization. On this week's program, Omar Cotter, Guantanamo, and the War on Terrorism. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 15th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. After 14 years in Afghanistan, the U.S. has been defeated by a few lightly armed Taliban. After eight years, half of Iraq is in the hands of the militant Islamic State. Washington has squandered trillions of dollars on wars that Washington has lost, while the U.S. economy and living standards declined as a result of the trillions of dollars wasted on futile wars. The neoconservative warmongers responsible for this disaster still control both U.S. political parties. These crazed warmongers are driving America to America's final defeat. That comes from the article, Hell on Unleashed, The U.S. Government is Driving Us into War with Russia, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted May 13th, originally appearing at paulcraigroberts.org. Credit is only an asset and can be considered wealth as long as the borrower can pay. And herein lies the rub. Greece cannot pay, which means the holders of Greek debt, along with issuers of CDS, cannot pay, and so on. It is not just Greece, of course. It is the entire Western world. It just happens that Greece is first, because they lied the most with the help of Goldman Sachs and other benefactors. If counterparty risk did not matter, there would be no problem. The reality is this. The whole show, from single-dollar bills to trillions in derivatives, will be engulfed in this counterparty risk. That comes from the article, Credit markets have melted overnight. Derivatives are a one-quadrillion-dollar ticking time bomb.
by Bill Holter, posted May 13th. With the manufactured war on terror, political activists, combat veterans, constitutionalists, libertarians, progressives, anarchists, gun owners, right-wing paramilitary militia group members, tea partiers, homeschoolers, and even fundamentalist Christians are but the latest victims monitored and singled out as today's potential domestic terrorists. Thus, with Jade Helm, the fear of persecution is certainly not in the least unfounded. Meanwhile, in recent years, Homeland Security documents and U.S. Army manuals, FM 3-39.40, called internment and resettlement operations, along with dozens of presidential executive orders and oppressive draconian laws, Patriot Act 2012 NDAA, are all on the books, specifying in detailed living proof how the federal government's not-so-hidden agenda will be to force hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens to relocate into prison resettlement camps complete with fenced-in barbed wire walls, armed guard towers, tribunal and even mortuary sections. Psychological officers are designated to reprogram citizens deemed salvageable, while the hardcore dissidents will simply be violently exterminated. These shocking details illustrating the Fed's sinister plan are all a matter of public record. That comes from the article, New World Order Martial Law Scenario, U.S. Government Pathological Lies Concerning Jade Helm 15 Military Operation, by Joaquim Hagopian, posted May 14th. The pro-Nazi core of the Ukrainian government that was installed by the U.S. in February 2014 is too well documented to be denied, and so the West's major propaganda media, self-styled as being news media, instead simply hide it. Most don't report any of it, but a few report snippets along with excuses to make individual events seem like aberrations, not the core, which they actually are. How much of this, which has been shown in Russia and in other countries that aren't yet controlled by the U.S., has been shown also on the nightly news in the West and reported in newspapers such as the New York Times and the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung news organizations that deny these realities whenever they are brought up, but that can provide no counter-evidence and therefore prefer to ignore altogether these realities, even while claiming to report the news. But how else can democracy be killed than by such a coordinated campaign to hide reality and deceive the masses? And similarly, how much coverage and how much public discussion and debate occurred about the Obama regime's having made the U.S. one of only three nations in the entire world that voted in the U.N.'s General Assembly against a resolution condemning the recent rise in unnamed nations of racist fascism and ethnic cleansing and of Holocaust denial. News cleansing fits well with ethnic cleansing. That comes from the article, Nazism of Ukraine's U.S.-backed government is hidden by Western news media, by Eric Zeus, posted May 13th. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Omar Cotter, the Canadian who had been detained in Guantanamo for nearly a decade for his alleged involvement in a firefight in the Afghan village of Ayub Kale before being repatriated to Canada, was finally released on bail May 7th. Cotter was accused and convicted in a U.S. military tribunal process of the war crimes, including throwing the grenade which fatally wounded U.S. Army combat medic Christopher Spear. Supporters of Mr. Cotter argue that he was a child soldier at the time of the attack, and that Canadian officials not only were negligent in repatriating a Canadian national from the Guantanamo facility, but that Canadian officials directly participated in the interrogation of Cotter while he was in Guantanamo, thereby violating his rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Moreover, the Supreme Court of Canada twice ruled that the government of Canada violated Cotter's rights under the Charter, and in a recent ruling, threw out the Harper government's call for Cotter to receive an adult rather than a youth sentence. The Canadian government, for their part, attempted to block Cotter's repatriation to Canada from Guantanamo and block his release from prison, continually evoking the confession he signed in 2010 of killing the army medic, among other charges, which he later recanted. Dennis Edney is the lawyer for Omar Cotter. He believes the majority of Canadians share his perspective of Omar Cotter as a decent person and a victim rather than the terrorists the conservative government paints him to be. Mr. Edney, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, first of all, I just want to uh, get your, uh, your, your take on uh, maybe providing us with basically the, the known facts about Omar Cotter's case and the multiple ways in which the justice system failed your your client. First of all, the official legend saying that which the Harper government and the conservative pundits are jumping on is that Omar Cotter threw a grenade at a U.S. soldier and killed him, and that there's video showing him constructing explosive devices, which we're told were intended for use against U.S. coalition troops. Now, just putting aside just for the time being, any questions of Qadar being a, a child soldier, is there any reasonable doubt as to whether o Omar, in fact, was responsible for the killing of the soldier? Any reasonable doubts there? Well, of course there is. Um, and our government knows the real story. It just doesn't want to tell the truth. It wants to stick to the same propaganda that has been saying for a long time. Because this is the government who didn't make any effort, unlike other Western governments, to get... Uh, a Canadian boy on a Guantanamo Bay, um, and this is a this is a government that at least a Canadian government was found by the Supreme Court of Canada to have been complicit with the CIA in his torture in Guantanamo Bay. And when we had a deal to get Omar out of, out of Guantanamo with um, the Americans, the deal was after one year, Canada would come and pick him up, and Canada didn't to wait another year. So with that background, I could tell you that there's not a single bit of evidence that ties Omar Khan to throwing a hangar in, in fact, at the so-called kangaroo trial in Guantanamo Bay, the lead Delta soldier who had 
been in the compound where Omar was at, and he arrived there with his with his uh, members when after the place had been blown up. He saw Omar Kadu screaming with his back to a wall uh, as he'd been severely damaged by the bombing, and he shot him in the back twice. And it was after that shooting in the back twice that the alleged hand grenade was thrown. There's no evidence. What evidence there is, is derived from torture. Mr. Carter has no memory of that that time um, because he was unconscious for about a week. And when he woke up in Bagram Hospital, where he he woke up to be tortured quite regularly, he was told consistently that he had killed a, a soldier. And Sergeant Joshua Claus, who was in charge of the interrogation group that was involved in this hospital in Bagram, continually tortured him to confess that he did so. From the moment Omar Kadu woke up, he was put into stress positions that caused him tremendous agony. He was then waterboarded, he was hung up in crucifixion poses, um, and when he um, peed on himself, he was then tied, un- untied, dropped on the floor, and his head used as a, a mop to clean up urine. And the, lit- the litany of abuses against this 15-year-old young boy is, uh, is quite incredible. And Sergeant Claus was in charge of an interrogation, was later convicted by the Americans of killing one detainee and crippling two others using the same techniques that he'd used on Omar Kara. In fact, I met that gentleman in Guantanamo Bay at the trial, and he was greeted like a hero. And so there's no evidence, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But there is evidence, there's a video that shows him the young boy making IUDs um, in this compound. Okay. Now, that that is, of course, something that uh, the... Uh the conservative government and uh, some pundits uh, like this fellow uh, Ezra Levant seems to be wanting to jump on as as being some sort of uh, proof. But whatever, I mean, even in this, in, even if there's anything there, there it's still under the uh, that whole context of him being a child soldier. Yes. Before we get there, you have to understand the context and the background, which our government doesn't seem to be interested in talking about. Omar Khadr, at the age of 15, was abandoned by his father and dropped into this compound with Taliban warriors. He had no choice to do whatever they wanted him to do. I had a call asking Omar, why didn't you run away? And he said, run away to where? And I would have been killed. And so here's a 15-year-old boy under the control of serious, serious, um, serious, excuse me, I can't get the word out, and warriors, and um, he's required to make these um, um, IUDs, which there's no proof that was for the Americans, although I think there's a reasonable inference that they may have been used. So what choice did he have? He was a child soldier in that circumstance, and he's entitled to all kinds of protections. In fact, the government understands that only too well because 
the Canadian government, along with the American government, spend millions of dollars rehabilitating child soldiers in places such as Sierra Leone. And they do that because they understand that the child soldiers are victims. They're controlled by adults. And under, un, under international law, they're required to be rehabilitated instead of being punished. In fact, David Crane, who is the, the chief prosecutor for the Sierra Leone trials, was prepared to come to Guantanamo to give evidence on child soldiers. But of course, the Americans wouldn't want him in at Omar's so-called trial. And at Omar's trial, there were no witnesses called. And torture evidence was not admitted into the trial. Even though one of the torturers, Damien Corsetti, whom you could check out on the internet and YouTube, um, wished to come and give evidence about his abuse of Omar Khadr and this team of interrogators. And he's on a, he is on a, um, a documentary I'm involved in where he says that we did terrible things to that young boy. Mm. Now, the uh, Canadian officials also, could you talk about the role of Canadian officials in, uh, in violating the, not not just in terms of uh, you not con- you bringing uh, Omar back, uh, repatriating him early on, but in fact participating in the interrogation of uh, of uh, Omar while he was in the the facility. Uh, could you talk about some of the concerns about those violations of his uh, charter rights there? Well, first of all, we all knew. I knew, even though I'd never been to Guantanamo. Guantanamo was was receiving um, international criticism, and, and and in particular from human rights organisations, as a, as not a nice place, as an evil place, a place where torture was endemic. It's a place where we where um, Dick Cheney said, "Just leave us alone, go shopping. Um, we know what we're doing." And so the, the, our government knew what Guantanamo stood for, and it decided to send its officials to interrogate this young boy who had already been in Guantanamo um, two years. So he's about, I think it was 16 when they first interrogated and then they came back and inter- interrogated him again when he was 17. And I was able to get a, a, a film and um, a video of that, of that interview and provide to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and in that video, which was shown to the Canadian public, and you have this boy crying on the video, Omar Carter, and he's telling Canadian officials that he had been tortured. And they kept denying he had been tortured, and they kept saying things such as, oh, you look like you've been well treated here. And so, and so it's, it's, that's the reality. Mm. Now the uh, the confession, and this is something the conservative government keeps repeating over and over again that he's a confessed terrorist, and uh, yes, the, yes, he is. But uh, and that is, and that is because I realized that this so-called trial was a was a kangaroo trial. It was a fiction. Uh, I had spent the summer prior to the trial, putting together all kinds of, of witnesses. And, and I was under, on the understanding that they would be called. 
on Omar's behalf, and they weren't. And I understood that the, the hand-picked jury of, of military officers would um, convict him. And I also understood that even if a miracle occurred, and in this kangaroo court they changed their mind and, and acquitted him, the Americans were still prepared to keep him indefinitely, notwithstanding whatever ruling came out of that court system. And so I, and so I became desperate, and I persuaded Omar to take a plea deal, because he'd spend the rest of his life in Guantanamo if he didn't. And that was difficult to persuade him, because he wasn't interested in doing so without some pressure I put on him. And so who amongst us wouldn't wish to do a deal to get away from the water borders and the tortures and a life in that hellhole? Now, are, are there any concerns about the... Um, is, I guess one of the points, again, that, that's being mentioned on the other side is that uh, you're having signed this... Uh, the, this uh, plea bargain that uh, that would waive any right to to recant later, which he in fact did. Uh, what, what is sort of the, the legal justification for recanting after the fact? Um, well, we've shown in the court recently that the waiver that was required to avoid having an appeal is was found by the federal court of the United States as being illegal. Mm -hmm. you, you have to understand, out of all these years in Guantanamo, there have been six trials out of the many, many, many men who have been there. And so, and three of them have been plea bargains, which was Omar's, one of them is Omar's. And so, there's not such a thing as, as, um, there's an automatic appeal process. Uh, it's quite complicated to explain it to you, but in any event, David Hicks, an Australian who had been in Guantanamo, he, like Omar, did a plea bargain. And the argument made was he, in doing so, he waived his legal rights to an appeal. And and we've always argued that, that Omar never waived his legal rights to appeal. Um, and the Federal Court of the United States, in Hicks' case, just a few months ago, agreed with Hicks that he hadn't waived, that he was entitled to an automatic right of appeal, no different than Omar. And so we used that case law to support um, our argument. But the government is not interested in truth. And Mr. Levant is certainly not anyone I would, I would consider as a... Um, as anybody who knows anything about Omar, Omar Khadr or Guantanamo Bay, Mr. Levant uh, seems to just be wish to be another uh, idiot about, or at least doesn't understand the truth of what goes on or doesn't wish to know. Okay. Now, I'm wondering, I mean, if, if, if it's not... Uh at some level, just ignorance. Uh, I mean, what, what is the, what is motivating the conservatives to, to go after your, your client the way they are? Do you, can you speculate on that? Well, that's all I can do is speculate. That question, that question you have asked me is a question that has been asked in Guantanamo by the Americans too. 
from the outset, as I indicated, it all, and Canada has shown it has no interest in assisting Omar Carter, a child, a Canadian citizen. And so I have no, I can't, I have no idea why that is. I can say to you, you have to put that together yourself. Um, we have not criticized Guantanamo Bay, unlike other countries. Um, we, Prime Minister Harper has talked about Guantanamo Bay as a place where Omar would get due process when every sane, reasonable individual in the world would tell you there's not such a being in Guantanamo. Um, it wasn't that many years ago that a Canadian lady, she was Anglo-Saxon, white Caucasian, called Brenda Martin, who was uh, found guilty in Mexico for um, fraud and thrown into jail, and our government under Mr. Hart negotiated with the, with the Mexican government for her release and then sent a private plane down to pick her up. Um, the only reason Omar Carter is in Canada is the Americans put him on an American plane and flew him back home to make Canada carry through with his, with his, his agreement in the plea bargain. So it, it doesn't take, I leave it to you, your listeners, to try and compare Brendan Martin to Omar Carter, a child, and make their own decision of why they think this government has not helped Omar Carter. I think it's quite obvious. Well, there, there's another aspect of this that, that you spoke, that, that you've mentioned that when he moved to the facility, when he was repatriated and moved to the facility in Edmonton, he was put in uh, the, the, the general population with white supremacists. How procedurally could that possibly happen? That does not, I can't imagine that would be a common circumstance or oversight. Um, could I it? think it is. I, 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 I'm, I have no reason to believe that Mr. Harper picked up the phone and said, do that. Um, I think I, I, I don't do any prison law. I've become aware of much about the, the problems in prisons with Omar Carter. And so I don't think it's unusual to, um, to, to do that in prisons. I think our prisons are chaotic and, they, and they're ashamed. On, on who we are. Okay. Um, I w- wanted to, to bring up, um, I mean, this is maybe moving back a little bit, but just the, the, the idea that, uh, you know, under the circumstances that it was a, a, um, a battlefield situation, if I recall. I mean, has that always been considered, uh, a, is it a war crime to, to be, you know, throwing a grenade at, at, uh, soldiers? in a battlefield situation? Not at all. But, um, we argue, argue that the charges against Omar Khadr are not recognized as international law of war charges. And we have filed an appeal in the United States almost two years ago um, seeking, seeking appellate relief. And we base our appeal on three other former Guantanamo detainees who made the same argument and who were charged with some similar offenses as Omar Khadr. And one of them is Hampton, the other is Mr. Abiyal, and so on. And the federal court in both cases has agreed 
that those in, in the circumstances, those particular plaintiffs, um, they, the charges against them were not recognized law of war charges. The, the Bush administration, I recall one of the comments made uh, by the Bush administration in early years was, now while you're trying to figure out one of the rules we've made up, we've moved on to another rule. So you can't catch up with us. Well, what's the other effect? And similarly, um, the Bush administration declared that, that they had the authority of the United Nations to go into Afghanistan, and anybody who shot back at them was a terrorist. And as a terrorist, they were not entitled to international law. This is from someone who doesn't understand international law, doesn't understand law in general. And, and so as I conclude this interview, let me say to you, listeners, Guantanamo Bay is nothing but a propaganda coup. There have been over 700 Guant detainees in Guantanamo, many of whom Human Rights Watch and other organizations, organizations state were sent, were, were sold to the Americans um, for money. I don't know that, but I can say to you is that in, in 12 years, and having only six trials, um, and there's now about 149 left in Guantanamo. And so the rest of those so-called terrible terrorists have all been released. And so what does that say about the statement of Guantanamo holding the worst of the worst? I suggest to you that it's just a fiction. Dennis Edney, thank you very much for your chime, and congratulations on the uh, your uh, success in the recent. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW ninety five point nine FM, and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Provide us with some context for the case of Omar Khadr and uh, his uh, long stay at Guantanamo Bay uh, prison facility. We're joined right now by Michel Chosodovsky. He is the d director of the Center for Research on Globalization and a uh, well-respected uh, professor of economics at the University of Ottawa. And uh, he uh, wrote, has written extensively on the, some of the uh, the issues around the so-called global war on terrorism. Uh, in particular, I'm referencing an article that's been uh, recently republished uh, called Kidnapping and Deporting Civilians to Guantanamo, Providing a Safe Haven to Al-Qaeda Fighters. So, uh, Professor Chosogovsky, uh, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Uh, delighted to be on the program. Uh, essentially... The issue which I raised, and this article was initially published uh, quite a number of years ago, in fact, in March of 2004, um, is that, uh, first of all, the United States um, protects its intelligence, its intelligence assets, and Al-Qaeda is an intelligence asset. And what happened in Afghanistan in November 2001 is absolutely crucial. Uh, 
Um, according to uh, a carefully documented um, article by Seymour Hirsch, which was entitled The Getaway, uh, Al-Qaeda so-called enemy combatants were airlifted and flown to safety in northwest Pakistan. Um, the number of enemy combatants, quote-unquote, were of the order of uh, 8,000, and according to Seymour Hirsch, they airlifted between 3,000 and 5,000 combatants. Um, rather than deporting them or imprisoning them um, or sending them to Guantanamo, to the Guantanamo Bay prison. Uh, and uh, what I want to address is the fact that while the United States in liaison with Pakistan was protecting its Islamic terrorists, quote-unquote, and airlifting them to northern Pakistan, most of the detainees of Guantanamo were, in fact, civilians, people who were kidnapped. They were, and, and there are many different cases. I, I don't want to go into that because, because it, 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 it's, it's not the, the main issue. Um, but they, they kidnapped people, and they kidnapped people in different countries and then sent them off to Guantanamo. In other words, they did not, in fact, go after the enemy combatants per se. And uh, I think that is important in assessing broadly the, the, the rights of, of the Guantanamo detainees as well as, as, well as uh, Omar Khadr. Um, but there's another dimension to this airlifting of Al-Qaeda uh, enemy combatants to northwest Pakistan, is that they ultimately required the continuation of these um, brigades so to speak, these Al-Qaeda brigades, with a view ultimately to, to justifying the continuation of the, of the global war on terrorism. In other words, you need terrorists to justify the global war on terrorism. And so that these operatives, which were, uh, which were created by the CIA, going back to the Soviet-Afghan war, which were financed, which were... Uh, which, were, which were trained in, in the CIA camps in Pakistan, uh, which were sub, uh, subjected to religious indoctrination, um, and, and so on, uh, using textbooks which were published by the University of Nebraska, all of which is documented. Well, ultimately, they wanted to sustain their enemy combatants, but they also wanted to... Uh, to uh, in the ways of 9-11 to wage a, a, a propaganda campaign, very openly wage a propaganda campaign, which featured uh, terrorists imprisoned in Guantanamo. Uh, the, I think the interesting dimension is, is the fact that Guantanamo 
uh, is was open to the public, or at least it was it was it received media attention. We knew about it, and, and we didn't know about the renditions, for instance, the, the CIA renditions. But what was important there is that as as a propaganda instrument, they covered what was happening in Guantanamo. They didn't hide it in any way. They were arresting people. They were not, they, their, their fundamental rights were, were denied. They were arrested without, without uh, charge. Uh, they didn't have access to lawyers. All of this was known. And the propaganda campaign really seeks to justify that. And ultimately, when Omar Khadra was arrested, he was a child, um, it was also intended uh, to, to say, well, these people ultimately are, are non-humans. We, they don't have rights. They, we, we arrested them, they're terrorists, and so on. Look at them, they're in Guantanamo. And ultimately, this, these concepts permeated people's minds and and it, it, it had a tremendous impact on our perceptions um, that people can be arrested without charge, they can be uh, extradited, they can be killed, that certain uh, covenants and international laws can be violated. All of that was part of the propaganda campaign. Uh, and it was not to obfuscate, to hide uh, CIA torture quite quite the opposite. It was to actually say, well, here they are, they're in a concentration camp, uh, they're denied, uh, we, we don't want to give them any kind of legal protection, that's why we put it in that jurisdiction, um, and, uh, and ultimately public opinion will have to accept because we're there to protect them. And the, uh, today, ultimately, that is the, the discourse of our government in Canada, saying, well, Omar Khad is, is a threat to our security, he's a terrorist, and so on and so forth. And, and the, the lie is, is there, the lie is there to prevail because it's the lie which is uh, presented by the, the government of Canada. Now, you mentioned that there are essentially, there were 660 people from 42 countries uh, held at the Camp Delta concentration camp in Guantanamo, and uh, that the, uh, the KBR, KBR the, the British subsidiary of, of, of Vice President Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, had a multi-million dollar contract to expand the facilities of the Guantanamo concentration camp, uh, including the construction of prisoner cells, barracks, and interrogation rooms. Um, could you talk about the uh, the, the, the financial uh, incentives, uh, the, those sorts of benefits, uh, the, the corporate, pro the profiteering, if you will, of this uh, these sorts of detentions? Well, the profiteering of uh, the profiteering of war is a, is a very broad process in that in that every single um, initiative, whether it's the construction of a of a detention camp um, uh, with a contract given to uh, to a subsidiary of uh, Halliburton, um, and of course uh, with Dick Cheney, which was Dick Cheney's company. Um, 
I mean, there are many examples of of how uh, you know how a military agenda generates billions and billions of profits. I I I, I think that that was one among many. Okay, uh, Halliburton Northwood contracts uh, in Iraq uh, to build cafeterias for the you know for the for the troops, which were multi-million dollar operations uh, and and contracts. And, and uh, indeed, uh, every single uh, military action uh, is uh, building up what we, we might call the war economy. You know, the war economy is extensive uh, with, uh, with mercenaries and, and uh, uh, the provision of weapons, uh, the, the scientific labs which are involved in weapons research and so on. So I don't think that that in itself is... is uh, is was the the motivating force, um, but uh, what I see is that the Guantanamo detention center was really a showpiece. Okay, um, if it if it had been a, uh, if it had been a, a detention camp for dangerous individuals, which were truly dangerous to national security, it would not have been presented necessarily in the same way. This was, um, this was part of the propaganda apparatus, and of course you have to have pictures of Guantanamo, you have to have pictures of the detainees in their orange uh, uh, uniforms, um, you had to have uh, pictures of of when they were actually transported by plane, all of which we had, and then we had to, then we had lawyers, uh, you know, lawyers, human rights activists, which were which were talking about this, and ultimately uh, there was some kind of a consensus which which emerged that Guantanamo was uh, well, nobody liked Guantanamo, but ultimately Guantanamo was was accepted as 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 an exception to certain fundamental legal and human rights uh, concepts. Uh, and, and I think that in itself, if, if we look at the last 15 years, you know, let's say but, uh, since 2001, uh, 14 years, we see how this has evolved, is that public opinion has come to accept certain things which they would never have accepted previously. And such as extrajudicial killings, uh, drone attacks, and so on. And, and, um, and today, uh, that objective has been achieved. Uh, it's, um, and we can see that the treatment of Omar Khadr and, and the treatment of presumed or alleged terrorists in Canada, where, they have to, where they're not allowed to go on the Internet, where they have to wear some kind of a... A, a GPS uh, so that they can be detected, um, where they're not allowed to, to go out after 10 o'clock at night. That, that is also now, uh, it's an illegal practice, but ultimately it's, it, it gains certain acceptance. Uh, obviously, there's always a fringe of, of the population which will say, well, no, this is an absolute uh, scandal that these things are occurring. And, uh, but, uh, but ultimately, it's, uh, it's an acceptance of the global war on terrorism, which is really the, the building block 
of U.S. foreign policy, the building block of military, uh, military indoctrination when the troops go out and, and, and fight there. And it is also uh, broadly accepted by, uh, by, the, uh, by Canadian U.S. civil society uh, that, uh, that the global war on terrorism is, is real. It, it's something which we have to wage. And we get very contradictory statements, even from, from anti-war people who say, oh, I, I'm against the war, I get, I'm against U.S. foreign policy, I don't like Obama, but I support the war on terrorism. It's a contradictory statement because the war on terrorism is fabricated, and the terrorists are fabricated, and they have to, they have to seem real. And for them to seem real, they have, they have to be, there has to be lawsuits, there have to be concentration camps, they have to be visible, uh, there has to be narrative on the part of, of uh, Prime Minister Harper saying, well, he's a threat to Canadians, and so on and so forth. And the kidnapping of civilians, sending them to Guantanamo, and then subsequently releasing them, uh, sending them back to their home countries, uh, is all part of a, of a, of a diabolical uh, propaganda agenda which sustains the legitimacy of, of the global war on terrorism. Professor I would describe this more as an inquisitorial doctrine okay. because it is so absurd uh, that people, the, the tenets of the global war on terrorism is, is absurd where we're presented with an outside enemy which, uh, which uh, is equipped with Kalachnikovs, which is threatening the most powerful uh, military power on planet Earth. Uh, and people are led to believe that, that all the troops and the, and the F-16 uh, jet fighters we send to Afghanistan or to Iraq are there to, to fight you know, these insidious Islamic rebels uh, without understanding that the Islamic rebels are in fact a creation of U.S. intelligence amply documented. So that really that is, that is why Omar Khadr was, uh, was arrested. Professor that's Chelsea. why Omar Khadr is, is, uh, is, is, being, is, is being victimized because uh, he has to be portrayed in a particular way with a view, uh, and that's very important, with a view to sustain the, the legitimacy of the real terrorists, which are the heads of state and heads of government, who support terrorism in, in, in the Middle East and Central Asia. I think there's a very important point that needs to be emphasized. You're saying that uh, the, 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 the sending these civilians to uh, to Guantanamo that it, it's being essentially a kind of a propaganda ploy. There are credible allegations of torture happening there. Are you saying that that the, the, the bad enough that you'd torture people under the misguided assumption you're getting important information, but people that these authorities are deliberately torturing people they know to be civilians? 
I would say that, well, ultimately it's not always clear to the people who do the torturing what they're doing because these people are also indoctrinated. If you look at, um, if you look at, a, at, a, at one of the Hollywood's recent movies, uh, uh, American Sniper, what you see is, uh, is that the, the U.S. troops were sent to Iraq. They're indoctrinated. They're told, well, we have to go after al-Qaeda. We have to go after bin Laden. We have to go after uh, al-Zarqawi. Um, and the, I would suspect that within the U.S. and Canadian armed forces, the global war on terrorism is the driving force. And so that torturing people in Guantanamo, for those who actually do the torturing, they don't necessarily view it as, as torture, they view it as interrogation. But the people because who... They, they believe that these people are terrorists. But the pro I think the issue is that at the higher levels of government and the higher levels of, the, of let's say, uh, uh, U.S. intelligence, uh, there is, um, <laughs> these people know that ultimately... The global war on terrorism is, is fake uh, because they are the architects of this global war on terrorism. Uh, the CIA knows, uh, people in the CIA know that they are recruiting terrorists, they're training them, they're financing them in Saudi Arabia, and that these, uh, these terrorists are then being set loose in, in Syria and Iraq, uh, supervised by U.S. Uh, and, and allied special forces uh, with the complicity of, of Turkey, uh, uh, and, and so on. All of this is known, but in, in, the, in the public, in, let's say, within the inner consciousness of Canadians and Americans, uh, there's this understanding that these people have been arrested because they're terrorists, because they threaten, uh, you know, they threaten American society and so on, and, uh, and consequently, um, torture under those circumstances has to be accepted. And the fact that they don't that they make it public uh, and that it's known is part of the propaganda uh, uh, discourse. Uh, previously, the CIA would torture people, but nobody would know about it. Okay? That was the case during the Vietnam War, for instance. But now it is okay to torture people who are terrorists, and the fact that it is made known uh, is... Uh, is, is, is to serve a particular purpose. Omar Khadr uh, no, does not constitute a threat to Western, to Western society in any way, okay? And none of these people do. Uh, the threat emanates from our, from our own governments. I mean, the threat emanates from our own governments uh, who are complicit in, uh, in the project of creating a global war on terrorism, and of course it goes back to 9-11, and, uh, and that in effect uh, it is known and documented that the heads of, heads of state and heads of government of Western countries, including Canada, the United States, Western Europe, are in fact financing terrorist entities in, in Iraq and Syria. We know that with the help of Saudi Arabia. and. Uh, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the rest of people, the rest of so-called, uh, you know, terrorists uh, and their imprisonment, uh, whether it's in Guantanamo or whether it's in, it, it's, it's in uh, other facilities in Western countries, 
it's the purpose of uh, the purpose is there to sustain the big lie, and it is there also to protect state terrorism. Okay. It is there to protect people in high office, including Canadian Prime Minister Harper, uh, with a view. I mean, with a view to to ultimately giving him a humanitarian image. Okay, when in fact. Uh, his government is actually involved in supporting, let's say, the ISIS uh, in in um, in Syria. Okay, you mentioned ISIS, and I, I'm wondering. It's been 14 years now since, or nearly 14 years since the official launch of the so-called global war on terrorism. I'm wondering if the use of Guantanamo Bay prison facility has changed or evolved in any way uh, since we've moved from the official enemy being al-Qaeda to now the official enemy being ISIS and with you know the, 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 the different flashpoints uh, we've seen in Libya and elsewhere. What can you say about uh, more recent, the, the more recent use of Guantanamo Bay? Well, you know, Guantanamo Bay in a sense has served its purpose. Uh, and and uh, and now uh, the, the United States is moving on uh, uh, with another agenda, uh, which is the I, which is ISIS. It's a shift in labels. It's not uh, bearing in mind that ISIS is essentially the continuation of Al Qaeda, and they've just changed the name. But the the the, the so-called Caliphate project is nothing new. Uh, it's nothing new at all. Uh, uh, it, it's been uh, referred to uh, uh, in previous uh, an initiatives of, of the United States, uh, and uh, uh, there they create a caliphate, okay, without even knowing, they don't even know what a caliphate is from a, from a religious point of view. Uh, they, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, these uh, entities have absolutely nothing to do with, with, with Islam, they are they are creations of U.S. intelligence, and that I think anybody who has done a little bit of reading knows that. Uh, but but uh, nonetheless, the whole process uh, ultimately sticks. I mean, the the, the lies stick, and 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 this is uh, you know this is uh, ultimately what is uh, what uh, what our governments want. They want us to they want us to endorse the lie. And the lie becomes the truth, and the truth becomes terrorism, so to speak. And uh, but but I think that the, the the rather unsubtle relationship is the fact that our governments are involved in a terrorist agenda, which consists in recruiting Al Qaeda operatives under various names, whether it's ISIS or whether it's uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb or, or the Arabian Peninsula, all of these are, uh, are U.S. Um, intelligence operatives with the support of, of, uh, of, of its allies. And, um, and, uh, and the United States is behind the, these terrorist organizations. And then what it has to do uh, is to twofold it has to make the public believe that the terrorists constitute a threat to us when we create them. And secondly, it, it really uh, acts as a safety valve uh, 
as a safety net, so to speak, for the state sponsors of terrorism, the architects of terrorism, which are, the, which are our governments, our heads of state, heads of, heads of, heads of government. And these people, are, these people have blood on their hands because they are, uh, through their respective intelligence agencies, they are financing terrorist organizations um, which are committing atrocities. And then they will tell public opinion, look at these terrorist organizations, they are threatening us, without, of course, acknowledging the fact that it is the state, the Western states, um, United States, Canada, Western Europe, which are behind these terrorist entities. Okay, I have one more question, uh, uh, sort of a, a permutation of this whole uh, subject. Um, you, so you've spoken about Guantanamo Bay as playing a, a propaganda role in furthering the legend of the, the so-called war on terrorism. I'm wondering about the, what they call the black sites, uh, these secret sites, these secret detention centers, because by definition, the public doesn't know about them. What... What what kinds of activities, like what purpose would you say they serve? Well, those those, uh, those black sites, the so-called rendition uh, um, uh, detention centers, interrogation centers, uh, theoretically they are not supposed to be known by the public, okay? As opposed, let's say, to Guantanamo. Um, and... Um, uh, we've now come to document that many alleged terrorists, but they, they may not, they could be other people as well. They could be, they could be people that the United States doesn't want, uh, that they transit through uh, various countries. Uh, there have been cases of, of countries in Eastern Europe which have uh, allowed, uh, the, which have provided facilities to, to uh, uh, to U.S. Uh, CIA interrogators, but I, I don't see this necessarily as part of the propaganda, the propaganda ploy, uh, uh, because in effect they're not supposed to be revealed to public opinion, whereas Guantanamo is revealed to public opinion. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for uh, those insights, uh, Michelle Chostovsky. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. We've been speaking with Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, award-winning author, professor of economics emeritus at the University of Ottawa, the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, and the author of several books, 11, including his most recent, The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.